are. We're gonna be looking at how to discern your gifts this morning, and so this is gonna be instructional. A little bit less preaching, a little more teaching, as has been our want in, through much of this series. And so as in that, to that regard, we're gonna ask simply three questions this morning that we're then gonna answer. First, in order to come to a place of discerning your gifts, we have to know what our options are. What If you walk in, now mind you, you don't get to pick your spiritual gifts, but what are the possibilities for my spiritual gifts? What are my gift options? Now, in the scriptures in the New Testament, we actually have five different lists on which Paul and other writers in the New Testament list out the various gifts of the Spirit. These gifts vary from the miraculous to the uh, very mundane. Most are not very sensational at all. They're, many of them are quite simple, things like hospitality or the gift of encouragement to something miraculous like healing or prophecy. Now each of these lists vary, and actually the selection of what was put on each of these appears to be quite haphazard. Paul, sim Paul simply seems to be throwing out different roles and gifts that the church has in each of these lists. In fact, many of the gifts, it is my belief, are not even listed, that Paul is simply giving examples of the gifts that are given to the church. In fact, I think that one of the best examples of this, of how God uses all sorts of things for the edification of his church, for his people, is actually found in the Old Testament. The very first place where we ever see the Spirit of God filling someone up for a work of ministry is not for preaching and teaching. It is not for to speak in tongues. It is not for something uh, miraculous, but it is actually for the building of the temple in which a man named Bezalel is said to be filled with the Spirit, and because he was so filled with the Spirit, God used his natural gifts and, and expanded and, and multiplied them for the building and the handcraft of the temple. He shaped and developed the various pieces, the, the ornaments that went in the temple to make it a place of beauty. He shaped and developed the priestly garments, all so that the worship of God's people might be expanded and developed. Therefore, this actually has led me to believe this, that there is not an exhaustive or comprehensive list of spiritual gifts to be developed from the scriptures. I would actually like to say that the number of spiritual gifts are as varied as the number of people in God's kingdom. A reflection of the fullness of the glory of Christ. Because the spiritual gifts are as varied as the number of people in this room because God will utilize the various natural gifts sometimes or sometimes he will usurp your lack of natural gifts to do his work in this world. We talked about that last week. That natural talents can and are used by God. I might say they're annexed or commandeered by the Spirit for spiritual purposes, for the edification of his body. We talked about this example last week, that Spurgeon was a great, as what is known as one of the greatest preachers and most effective preachers in, in the history of the church, and he was known as a great natural order, whereas D.L. Moody was one who also was a very effective preacher and was greatly blessed and, and was given the gift of preaching and teaching, but actually had no seemingly natural ability for public speaking. And yet God uses these gifts, and therefore they vary exponentially, not only because of the very types and the way the Spirit will use your past and your natural abilities and then bring them into his fold and use them for his purposes, but also for the various settings. If you imagine this, like my gift sets today would look different 1,500 years ago. 
This has your historical settings in such a way that God has shaped you for this place and in this day to use your gifts in this room and amongst this body. Now that is a beautiful thing. That you reflect something unique and specific, a gift that only you can fulfill. That there are people out there for whom God and works of good that God has ordained for you to fulfill. You specifically, not for a generic bunch of people called teachers, but for you to teach in exactly the way that God has called you and gifted you and use it for the edification of his body. Now, there's not much of a debate. If someone were to look at at, at my particular opinion there about how God uses all of our natural gifts and say, no, I think you're going too far. I think we should just simply stick with the 19 or 20 gifts left in the New Testament or listed in the New Testament. I'd be fine. There's not much of a debate about that. Now, there is a debate in the church around some of the gifts, whether there are some gifts that no longer are available to us. In other words, in the last 100 years, there has been a raging debate in the church over what has now become known as the charismatic gifts. And the question amongst many churches and many parts of the church world, particularly in America and South America, is are these so-called charismatic gifts available to us today? Now, for some of you, this is going to make your eyes glaze over, but I'm gonna just walk through a few of these charismatic gifts because it is important that we bring clarity as to what is available to us and what is, should be active and present in the church today. The charismatic gifts can be listed under three headings. The gift of miraculous healing, the gift of tongues, or what we'll simply call word gifts. Let me just take these each in order, and I'll try to be very brief because I don't want to get bogged down too much in this. First, the gifts of miraculous healing. Sometimes it is argued from many people in what is called the Reformed camp is that the gift of miracles has ceased that it is no longer available, that we should not expect to see miraculous healings or signs. And the reason why this is they say that the God gave miracles to simply attest to Jesus' lordship and to the authority of the apostles. Now, I would say, yes, that is absolutely true, that the primary places in which we see miraculous signs and gifts being used in the scriptures is, when, is, is to affirm and is to use as a sign for an apostle or a prophet or for Jesus' authority. But you, that argument only holds water if you think that miraculous healing only is given to attest to Jesus or the apostle's authority. I think it absolutely is given for that reason, but I think primarily miracles are actually given as signs to attest to the fact that the kingdom of God has broken into this world and that God's spiritual invisible kingdom is making itself visibly manifest in a place where it has not yet been known. Therefore, I actually anecdotally say that the places where we primarily see miraculous healings today or in places where it is where the it is unreached people groups, where the, where the church has is breaking in for the first time or returning after hundreds or thousands of years, in which we see attestations of miraculous events happening in the church. We should desire and we should expect even that God would still work in this world miraculously, that he would suspend the natural world sometimes or super, uh, go do things that are supernatural to the natural world. In fact, James 5 actually commands us to pray for God's healing, to pray for miraculous works. Now, here's, having said that, I want to make some caveats about miraculous healings. First, 
God has primarily works through the ordinary means of grace. This is seen primarily, this is seen in the scriptures, anecdotally in church history, that God has not primarily worked through miracles. They are here and there for a particular purpose, but primarily he has worked through the ordinary, through the simple preaching and teaching, the communication through prayer, through the sacraments. This is how God has primarily worked. Second, it is also true that there are many, especially in the last hundred years or so, who have horribly abused or claimed to have this gift when they clearly did not and abused it for their own personal self-aggrandizement or self-promotion. For example, the Benny Hens of the world, the false teachers making false claims to a power that they do not possess and seeking to manifest a power in order to show that they are great. Or the way it will often go about it, if you go and watch TBN, as you'll sit there and you'll watch this, this in the so-called Christian television as people saying, we will heal if you'll send us some money or if you just have greater faith. The Benny Hens are reflected of the likes of Simon the magician who is found in Acts chapter eight, who when he sees that the miraculous works that the apostles did say, hey, that's a good party trick. I wanna do that too. It did not end well for Simon and it's not gonna end well for the Benny Hens of the world as well. Those who would misuse and abuse and but who we must reject any claim of a gift who would use that for their own self-importance or any claim that would say that you are not healed because you don't have enough faith. All such teachings are ugly because they are actually antithetical to the good news of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, we ought to pray for healing. Do not be so scientifically minded. Don't be so modernistic that you forget that we have a God who is over and above this world, who can suspend nature, who may do things that are miraculous, and so you pray to that end. In fact, you may even pray that your touch may heal somebody. I have yet to see someone who has this gift, but I also will not reject that someone may have this gift in God's kingdom. So that's the healing, magic, uh, uh, healings, miraculous healings. Second, tongues. Some of you may have heard of tongues. Is there a gift of tongues and even what is it? There are at least two different types of tongue gifts in the New Testament that we see. We see the gift of tongues in Acts chapter two where some people are giving the gift of tongues meaning that they can speak or are heard in various languages. But then the gift of tongues that is talked about primarily in 1 Corinthians 14 are, appear to be a spiritual prayer and worship language. They're not talking to others, but they're talking to God. It can be defined as a private prayer language. To though it is not necessarily ecstatic, but it is not comprehensible to those around the person praying, nor even to the person who is praying. And Paul, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, gives this gift significant amount of time, but mostly because the church in Corinth had abused this gift. And in fact, in Corinth, they had taken this gift and it's given it a greater importance than Paul or the, the scriptures give it. Therefore, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 is a couple principles about tongues. First, do not exalt the gift of tongues above other gifts. In fact, Paul said it is the lesser gift because gifts are for the edification of the body. And tongues are really just for your edification. Now, are you part of the body? Yes, 
but it's a very, it's, it's, bomb, it's bomb radius is very small. It really just affects you as a part of the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the gifts of tongues, what they were saying in the church there is that this is the gift that is above all other gifts. And in fact, Paul says, no, that is not true. We are not to exalt this above all other gifts. Oddly enough, this is the very theology that the charismatic movement, or what is known as Pentecostal theology, has done. They have taken 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and they have turned it on its head. They have looked at it and they've said, if you are truly baptized with the Holy Spirit, then you will definitely speak in tongues. But the Bible is clear that to receive the gift of the Spirit of God is to become a Christian. All those who are Christians are baptized in the Spirit, but not all those who are baptized in the Spirit are given the gift of tongues. Which is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, do all prophesy? Are all apostles? Do all speak in tongues? And the inference is, no, not everyone has every gift. So that's one of the rules. The other rule is this, that if you are given the gift of tongues, that there are rules for you to follow. And the rule is this, you are not to use them publicly in worship. It is off limits for you in using this gifts unless for some reason God has also blessed you with a tongue interpreter. Remember, in this body, here together, we are here to edify one another, and therefore, if your gift only edifies you, it is not appropriate to use it in a public setting. Use it and praise God for it in your own private prayer closet, but it is not to be used publicly. Paul says if you don't have an interpreter, you don't use the gifts of songs publicly. Having said all that, I see no reason to declare the gift of, God, of tongues as illegitimate. I have never personally spoken in tongues, but I have known people who do, people who I respect dearly, who are great theologically, who know their Bibles and love Jesus deeply. In fact, after rightly putting the gift of tongues in its appropriate place, Paul ends his discourse on tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 by saying that no one should forbid this gift. No one should say that this is a false gift. Lastly, the word gifts. Does God still speak to people today? Does God still speak to people or through people today? And my answer to this is, of course he does. I wouldn't have a job. I would not be doing what I'm doing. But his speaking today is not new revelation. Instead, what the Spirit does and speaking through particular people is illumination of God's word. God has objectively and finally spoken to us through the scriptures. In fact, in the last couple of verses of Revelation, it says, be cursed to anybody who adds to the Bible. Therefore, we are not adding to scripture at any point. That is the objective, complete word of God. And yet, the spirit of God continues to illumine hearts so that we might best understand and also apply God's word. No one can show up here and say, thus saith the Lord, and give this church a new message from God and have authority. So what does this mean practically for us? Well, it means there's no apostles. No one can show up. You may have been a part of particular branches of the church and where you may go to a revival meeting where it says, oh, we have a great speaker this week. Apostle so-and-so from way over yonder is coming to speak to us. There is, it is a misuse and a misappropriate use of the word apostle. Now, certainly you can use apostle in the most generalized term. It literally means sent one. And that way you might refer to a missionary and his apostle. 
but I think it is inappropriate because the vast majority of the time in the scriptures where it refers to apostle, it refers to those who are God's, Jesus' eyewitnesses who um, testify, who saw Jesus, who were set aside for this office by Jesus, and once the apostles were dead, and they include Paul, once they were dead, this, this role or this office left the church. It is no longer active in that way. Yet, at the same time, the gift of apostleship is still ours. Do you know how? Who wrote your New Testaments? The, the apostles did. The apostles wrote you, therefore their ministry is alive and well, and while there is no one who can walk into church today and say, I have the authority of an apostle, and I'm gonna give you a new word of God, but we do have the gift of apostleship coming to us through the New Testament as God continues to speak to his church through the word of God as testified by the prophets. Now what about the gift of prophecy? Are there those who claim to be prophets today? Well, here I actually confess to you a great amount of agnosticism. I don't know. The office of, or of prophet or the gift of prophecy is one that I have pulled my hair out on for many, many years. I wrote a paper on it in seminary and still didn't come to any good conclusion. I didn't get a good grade on the paper. <laughs> but let me say it this way. There are the vast majority of the ways in which we think of a prophet in the Bible. I think most of us think of a prophet as one who receives, supernaturally receives a message from God and then takes that message and authoritatively extends that message and shares that message with God's people or with others. If that is what a prophet is, no prophet can come to this church anymore and proclaim to speak authoritatively with a message from God. They cannot be treated as infallible in their message to us. And yet at the same time, and this is where the confusion enters into my mind, is that there are many of those who are referred to in the scriptures as prophets or as those who prophesy, whose one, whose words never make it into scriptures, and then two, are not necessarily seen as authoritative. In other words, it is assumed in the New Testament that there's gonna be a prophets, but that their word is not necessarily authoritative or infallible. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, it says, all prophetic messages should be submitted to and evaluated by the church community. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, it says this, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. In other words, test them, evaluate them. Are these true? Therefore, the best sense I can make of this office of prophecy or a prophet or this gift of prophecy is that while no one here can claim to be like Moses or Jeremiah or Elijah and have the authority that they possessed, but that there are those who are provided the gift of a supernatural insight to help us apply and best understand the objective word of God. Let me give you some examples and apply this to us. I think the question that we would concern most of us in regards to our own Christian life is this, is would or could God speak to me today? Some of you may have claimed to have heard from God. Do you people still receive messages from God, either meant for you personally or meant to pass on to other people? My answer is, I believe so, yes. There are supernatural spirit-given messages to, to us which are subjective illumination and subjective application of the objective word of God. Therefore, let me give you an example of it. 
I have had only one time in my life where I felt like that I heard very clearly that God was calling me very specifically to carry out a particular action in my life. It was to, that my wife and I were to pursue adoption. Now, that is not in the scriptures anywhere. I wasn't reading my Bible and suddenly there was a new verse there that said, Andrew Henley, you're supposed to adopt a child. That did not happen. But what I was reading was a passage about loving your neighbor. And that the Spirit of God in illuminating an application spoke very clearly to me that the application of loving my neighbor is that my wife and I were to partake in hospitality in the form of adoption. And as long as you're careful to distinguish between authoritative prophecy, thus saith the Lord, from non-authoritative, fallible prophecy, then you're in the clear. Do you understand that this is a tightrope that I'm trying to walk? And we might, therefore, is because it's a tightrope, we should walk it with fear and trembling, with humility. There must be a soberness, a humility, and indeed a submissiveness in the use of prophetic gifts. Therefore, let me apply some rules about this. If you hear from God, or you think you hear from God, you must submit your sense of having heard from the Lord to the word of God itself. In other words, if you show up and tell me that God has told you that you can leave your wife, that you can divorce and leave your children and your spouse, I will say to you, you did not hear from God, you heard from a demon. Because God's word very clearly states that divorce is evil, that you remain faithful to your spouse. Last year, we had someone who was attending King's Chapel, and this person and I, we met up for lunch, and I was interested to hear this particular person's story. And throughout his story, he kept using the phrase, and the Lord said to me, oh, and God said to me, and God said to me, this made me very uncomfortable. Not that I so much question whether the Lord says things, but God seemed to speak to this guy a lot more often than he spoke to most people. And not only that, but where I really began to be very troublesome is when God had told this person that they should leave the local church and not participate in any church for 10 years. My suggestion with him was not he was not hearing from the Lord because God's word has made it clear that you're to participate in the visible church. See, all subjective experiences are infallible. In other words, we can mishear God. You cannot say, I feel like God is telling me. How do you know that isn't indigestion? And therefore, you must submit all feelings of having heard from the Lord, any subjective experiences of God illuminating to the word of God. The second is you should submit these messages to the covenant community. In 1 John 4, verse 1, it says, test the spirits. In 1 Corinthians 14, 29, it says, all prophetic messages should submit it to and evaluated by others in the community. For example, Charles Spurgeon has a story one day of getting down from preaching, and someone came up to him and said, God has given me a word that next week I should be the one who preaches here at the church. And Spurgeon said, that's funny, because God hasn't told me that. Some of you have gone to your spouse, or perhaps some of you have gone to somebody that you're dating. Please know. And said, and said, the Lord has told me that we're supposed to get married. Let me tell you something. If it involves a covenant community, that means two people who are in covenant with one another, spouses, you can expect that if God has spoken to one, he will speak to the other. But they will affirm and confirm what you have heard, and therefore, practically speaking, you should submit what you think you've heard from God to those around you. I'm talking about these controversial subjects. I'm trying to bring some clarity and also show the, the tightrope they're walking so that we may be a generous people, so that we may major on the major and minor on the minors, but where there are a variety of convictions on these matters that on non-essentials that we can embrace one another, that we, on non-essentials we can be charitable, but on essentials there must be unity in all human, in humility. 
Feel free to come talk to me about these things. We're gonna move on to something more happy. So that's the gifts. Those are your options. Those are maybe some of the things that you're not your options. Here's the question. How do you discern your gifts? Well, let me tell you, I have a, a proven way to find all your gifts. It's an, I'm gonna call it the all A's process of discerning your spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. You know, if some of you are too young to remember this, but do you remember, remember when you had a phone book and everybody wanted things to start with A? I wanna make A, I wanna bring back A's again because the internet has destroyed the letter A. Used to have things like aardvark insurance, but now we need to bring back the letter A, and so we're gonna bring it back today. All right, six, six A's I want us to look at in regards to discerning your spiritual gifts. The first one is this. First, affinity, affinity. What are your passions? In other words, is the question we're asking. What is something that you want to do? And my own personal story and how way God led me to preaching and teaching, when I was serving my, between my junior and senior year in college, I had a great job. I was the congressional aide for a United States congressman. It was really cool stuff. I got to rub elbows with the rich and the powerful and the beautiful. I got to hang out with Miss America for a day. I got to hang out with, with senators and go behind the scenes at NASA and at Kennedy Space Center. It was really cool. But you know what, the whole summer, the thing I was most excited about was a Tuesday night Bible study I was leading with college students. And I knew very clearly then that God was not calling me into politics or to some sort of civil service, but God was calling me into the use of the gifts for teaching and preaching. What are you passionate about? What excites you? What gets your juices flowing? That's one. Second is your ability. What are you good at? What are you good at? This involves some honest self-assessment. Romans 12, verse three says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. In other words, this is not American Idol in regards to our giftings. That first episode is awful, isn't it? It is cringeworthy because sometimes they, some people believe they have not properly self-assessed, but it goes on to say, but think with sober judgment. That word sober judgment is that we are to have a realistic self-assessment of ourselves. Don't think of yourself as too great, and I might also add, don't think of yourself as too little. These are gifts given to you by the Spirit of God. They ought to be great. Sometimes if you read Paul, I remember reading Paul as a kid and I thought, man, this guy's arrogant every once in a while. But he had a clear sense of security as to the greatness of the office and the role that God had given himself. So what's, what are you good at? Third, I had to pigeonhole this word in, after effects. The question is this, what is the Lord blessing? What is the Lord blessing? In other words, this, if you remember last week we talked about what is a spiritual gift, it is not necessarily always those things that you're really naturally good at. There may be something that you're terrible at, but the Lord keeps blessing it for some reason, and in which there's fruits of your labors in which you share your faith, and you, and you think you sound like one of the adults from Peanuts, and yet when you share your faith, people end up being saved, and you go, I don't understand. That was gibberish, and yet the Lord used it. I was scared the whole time. I was bumbling my way through that, and yet God used it. <laughs> What is the after effects? Where is the Lord blessing, maybe despite your natural giftings? Fourth affirmation, this is really important. What do others say you're good at? Ask your friends, what are my gifts? What am I good at? One of the mistakes that people often make is that they determine their gifting or even their call in God's church without actually asking anybody else in God's church. 
without actually going to maybe the elders of a church and asking if they're, actually, they're good at preaching and teaching. And indeed, the church, both as leaders, but also as individuals, you have the responsibility to call out the glory, the spiritual gifts of each of those around you. 1 Timothy 4, verse 14 says this, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. Let me ask you this. Who called Timothy to be a pastor? The Spirit, God gave him a gift, but who affirmed it and confirmed it? The church. And we call it in the Presbyterian world the internal call, the sense that I'm called to this, and the external call. The fact that other people around me suggest that I'm called to this. God did, but the elders validate that call and they put their seal of approval on it. Who appoints leaders in God's church? God does, but the church confirms it. God's the one who raises them up, but the church is the one who points them and says, you're a leader, you're a teacher, you're a preacher, you're a servant, you're a, you have this gift. You see that the call of God to special office or to any office in the church not to be confirmed in our hearts but also in the church. My own father says it this way, whom God appoints or whom God anoints, the church appoints. Whom God anoints with a gift, the church appoints to use that gift in specific ways. Now these affirmations in your life can be explicit. In other words, you can ask people what you're good at and they can look at you directly in the eye and they can say, you're good at this. You're very good at this. And I'm not talking about your mother. Somebody else besides your mom and your grandmother should suggest to you that you're good at something before you continue to figure out that you're called to it. If you think you're called to preach, but no one thinks they're called to listen, I might suggest to you that you're not called to preach. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. You know what those sins are? Of not wanting to engage with them. In other words, we are not to simply lay hands and set people aside for various gifts and offices quickly. But these affirmations can also be implicit. For example, let me give you an illustration of, what, of leadership. Do you have the gift of leadership? You know, there's a sure way of knowing. If you turn around and you see people following you in life. If you have charged up the hill and you've made a rowdy cry and you get to the top of the hill and there ain't nobody following, let me tell you something, you're probably not a leader. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're not gifted. It doesn't mean the Lord hasn't given you some great thing to do in his church, but it means that perhaps, perhaps this is not your particular gifting. So affirmations are important. Fifth, ask. In particular, you should ask God. Have you prayed for God to reveal your gift? We don't just, I'm not just tacking this on. Oh, don't forget to pray. Do all these other things, but don't forget to pray. I suggest that you pray, pray. I mentioned this, think about what the spiritual gifts mean. This is so beautiful. Not only has God sent his son to die for you, not only has God sent his spirit to make you new, but God has sent his spirit to you to give you an array of gifts, an expression of Christ's beauty in this world. That is a beautiful thing. And so ask him. And if he is the one who is the giver of the gifts, don't you think you should talk to him about it? You ever gotten a gift that you didn't understand? Some of you are looking at your lives and you're going, I, I don't know what gifts God's given to me. This, this, is a, this appears to be a gifting dumpster fire. Or I, this is like the socks of gifts. Lord, would you please show me why you gave me an electric sock for a gift? And guess what? He may reveal to you why it is that he has given you a particular gift or how to use it. 
Sixth and finally, activate. Activate. This is quite simple. Do something. If you don't honestly know what your gifts are, do something. Kevin Young, a number of years ago, wrote a small book that I really liked. He was a pastor at the time of a college town, and one thing you learn about being around college students is they're making a lot of rather large decisions in life. What am I gonna do with my life? What am I gonna, what's my vocation? Who am I gonna marry? These kind of things. And so a question that would often come up is what is God's will for my life? And in answering that question, he wrote a book that simply had this title, Do Something. Just do something. If you don't know what your gifts are, you will not bring them to the forefront unless you begin to serve in some way, shape, or form in God's people. And you must be careful to not play the game of gift cop-out, which in other words is to declare that you have a particular gift and therefore you don't have to engage in any other part of God's church. I have the gift of preaching and teaching, therefore I can never serve in the nursery. This does not go, this is not, this is, you cannot use your gift as a cop-out from serving in God's, in God's house. I don't have the gift of evangelism, therefore I never have to share my gospel with my neighbor. That's not, that's not true. But some of you have not stumbled upon the fact, the aspect of the way God has designed you because you have used these cop-outs. You have been lazy. You have not taken holy risks under God's name in the hope of finding how God might use you. Lastly, last question we come to as we come to a close this morning. How do you grow in your gifts? How do you grow in your gifts? Well, obviously you won't grow in them unless you use them. One of the suggestions to young preachers is this, preach and preach and preach all the time. Tim Keller says that most preachers will throw away the first 10 years of sermons, that you'll look back and realize that the first 10 years of your sermons were garbage. I'm on year seven. I got three more years to go, in which I'm not just dumping them in the garbage and hoping that maybe I'm learning something along the way, but you gotta use your gifts but I'd say this, here's the primary way in which your gifts grow. They actually grow as you grow in this other thing that the Spirit gives you, which is fruit. Gifts are not spiritual fruits, and you must be clear about that. Galatians shares with us the fruit of the Spirit. You know what's really interesting about the fruits of the Spirit? Or it's not the fruits, it's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. It is not like the gifts. All of us have been given gifts, but not all of us have been given all the gifts. But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, these things, this is a singular fruit. They're all the fruit of one tree, the Spirit of God, and therefore all Christians are to display all of these fruits. Every Christian is supposed to have these fruits. And there's a difference between fruit and abilities and gifts. Gifts have to do with our abilities. Fruit has to do with who you are. Gifts help us do the work of Jesus. Fruit helps us to become like Jesus. Gifts produce gifted Christians. Fruits produce godly Christians. Giftedness does not equal godliness. And if you follow social media, I actually found this yesterday. I don't know, it was called, um, it's something, there's some Instagram post or site, it's like uh, preachers and sneakers. And it shows the, uh, some of the wealthiest and most profound preachers in America and the Gucci that they're wearing in the pulpits. And it goes and they find, they can find pictures of these preachers with a Gucci belt or Gucci shoes and then they, they put the picture of the item of them preaching in this item and then it shows a, an online uh, cost of that item. And it'll be things like a $3,000 for a singular rain jacket. $900 for a belt. 
in a world of the, of the great preachers, quote unquote, out there, of the celebrity pastors who actually have no holiness, this is what we've confused, isn't it? That we've confused giftedness for godliness, but they do not equal one another. You can be fooled by your gifts. This is why you can have incredibly gifted pastors who on a Sunday lead people to come to know Jesus and on Monday run away with the secretary. In fact, we heard one well-known pastor who was the pastor of one of the largest churches in America said this. He said, the gift remained long after the fruit of holiness in my life was gone. In fact, the further I went on, the better preacher I got, even as I became more unholy. So the word says, not that we'll be known by our gifts, but we'll be known by our fruit. And the connection between these two is this. If you wanna use and develop and grow in your giftedness over the course of your lifetime, then you must have the goal in your giftedness of producing fruit. That the means of growing your giftedness is the, is the pursuit of fruitfulness. Spiritual fruit has to be the real goal, and spiritual gifts have to be seen as the, have to, spiritual gifts are the means of displaying that fruit, but they are not the fruit itself. The real goal is the fruits. And in particular, in all the places that Paul talks about spiritual gifts, in particular, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and then we see in our text today, that he's talking about the gifts, apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists, and then Paul says this in verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that what? It builds itself up in love. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, it gives a, a list of the gifts and about the unity and the diversity in the body. And then in verse 14, it talks about the gifts of prophecy and tongues. But in the smack dab in the middle, there's this passage called 1 Corinthians 13. You may have heard of it. It's called the love chapter. And it begins this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is so much different than the way we think, isn't it? And every denomination has its form of fruit that's actually a gift that they value and call it a fruit. Presbyterians, the, the measure of the fullness of the Spirit of God is great theology. And those who can preach and teach and know how to study the Word ask a Baptist the same question, what is the fullness of being like God? And they would say personal piety. That's what it is. The spiritual disciplines. Ask a Pentecostal and they'll say the charismatic gifts, tongues or prophecy, these are the things. But ask Jesus and the apostles and what will they say? Brotherly love. Brotherly love. This is how you're supposed to be. This is what you're called. And let me ask you this question. And it's as you develop in brotherly love, your gifts will grow and develop and be used with great power for the edification of the body. So here's the question, how do we get great love? That's a million dollar question, isn't it? Real love, real love only develops when you meet love. We know this, don't we? If a child, if an infant is born and they're orphaned or they're abandoned and they're put into an environment, you go into the orphanages of Eastern Europe and they say you walk into those orphanages and there is a deathly silence because it's children who are never loved, never picked up, and they cried for months. 
but eventually they stopped. And they are unreceptive to love. It is like all the, the love connectors in their life are not developed. And you kids who are grow up in these places don't learn how to love and they don't know how to receive love. Because essentially we learn to love by being loved. If floor love is something that you try to do or develops in you, love is something or someone that you meet. It is to be received first. So where do you meet love? You know, the, the great description of love is found there in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? In verses 4 through 7, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. Love hopes. We love that passage. You know, you read it at weddings all the time. What is important, though, for, for us to see is that Paul does not say to us, hey, I want you to be patient, and I want you to be kind, and I don't want you to envy, and I don't want you to boast, I want you not to be proud. Instead, he personifies love. Love is. Love becomes an individual, a person. Love is a person who is doing this. And this is not an abstract example that Paul is using. Paul's teaching and motivating us in regards to love, but not by displaying some sort of mythical, abstract person. He's thinking about one person who displayed perfect love. And here's what it is. Here's, if you're to develop in love, here's what you have to consider, is that when Paul wrote, love bears all things, how could he not have been thinking about Christ Jesus, who on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore forsakenness for you. So you learn how to love, to see one who loved you in that way. When it says love does not keep a record of wrongs, how could you not be thinking of Jesus who on the cross looks down at the people who are putting him on the cross and says what? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. When you see hope, when you see one, a love who hopes and perseveres, it says love endures all things. One of the most amazing things is this, is that Jesus, what's the last words he says on the cross? It is finished. It's a Greek word, it means it's completed, it's accomplished. You know what that means? That Jesus is here, he's stripped naked, he's abandoned, he's penniless, he's a man who's tortured, he's powerless, he has, he has had no one left. But then just before he dies, what does he say? I did it. I did it. Love perseveres. Love endures. Love bears to the end. Love never fails. I will never leave you or forsake you. How do we know? Because he was willing to go to the depths of hell not to forsake you. So here's the question. How do you grow in love? How do you grow in the gifts that are developed by a loving heart? You gotta experience the love of Jesus by seeing and gazing upon and dare I say, tasting the love of God for you. To the degree that you do, you'll learn to love and you'll find that your gifts suddenly are far more maybe not as talented, but are blessed far more for the edification of the body. Let's pray and let's get to the table. Those who are serving can come forward. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the way that you have gifted your church. Lord, I, I, just, I thank you, Lord, for the individuals in this place, for those who are called to counsel and comfort. I thank you for those who have the gift of service, the Mary Fishers of the world, the people on our coffee team, the people on our welcome team, those who are hospitable. Thank you for those who have been called to adoption and the, the ministry and the gift of hospitality. Thank you for those who do a great job having tens and twenties and 40 and 50 people in their home. Thank you for those who are hosting community groups this year.
I thank you, Lord, for those who are generous, that you have blessed them abundantly and financially, or perhaps you've given them little, but you give them a heart to give away all that they have for those around them. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect gift of Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, I'm reminded of this beautiful truth that when the apostles went out and performed miracles in your name, after their first internship, they came back and Jesus said, be glad that you're in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we come to celebrate that while we're gifted and we ask that you would use us, we come to celebrate this beautiful truth that the greatest gift of all is that you have welcomed us to the table, that you have loved us to the very end. You have drawn us to yourself. You have embraced us as your children. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come, as your people this morning, some tired out because we're trying to use our gifts without love and therefore we are burning ourselves out or we're finding our gifts, we're using our gifts and everybody's angry at us because we're not using them with love and affection. Lord, when we come in our failing and our frustrations and our tiredness and come to the table of mercy, Lord, you set aside this bread and this cup and assure us of your love, that we would meet and taste the good love of God, that you would grow up in us an affection for one another so that we would wanna live our lives for you and use all that you have given us for the good of our brothers and sisters around us. Would you do that in this place? Would you encourage us? Build us up in hope and love and faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.